0: and sign up today. You're listening to the Portrait System Podcast.
1: I woke up one day and I was like, in 10 years, I don't want to be sitting at a bigger desk earning more money doing the same job, right? And I was like, well, I don't know what I want to do, but if I don't start looking, I'm never going to find it. So that was really the the catalyst for moving on.
0: This is the Portrait System Podcast, a show that helps portrait photographers and people hoping to become one navigate the world of photography, business, money, and so much more. We totally keep it real, we share stories about the incredible ups and the very difficult downs when running a photography business. I'm your host, Nikki Klosser, and the point of this podcast is for you to learn actionable steps that you can take to grow your own business and also to feel inspired and empowered by the stories you hear. Today's guest is Ben Von Wong, and he is a photographer who uses his art to focus on amplifying positive impact. Ben has gone viral with his work many, many times and has made a name for himself with his really powerful campaigns. Ben chooses causes that he's passionate about and that affect the world around us. And he creates unforgettable and thoughtful photos that make his message impossible to ignore. While he doesn't necessarily do traditional portrait work, we talk a lot about how you can apply the basics of what he does to any portrait business. Okay, let's get started with Ben Von Wong. Hey, Ben. Welcome to the Portrait System. How are you?
1: I'm doing great. Yourself?
0: I'm good. I'm great. Yeah, hanging in there. Okay, so we have so much to talk about. And I just wanted to let people know that you have a very unique story. And and while on the surface, it might not seem like the typical photography story, when our producer Aaron reached out, and he was like, hey, I really would love for you to interview this guy named Ben Bon Wong. And your artist name kind of is Bon Wong, correct? So like on Instagram right. and everything, you're Bon Wong. Okay. So he asked me about interviewing you. And when I looked you up, I was like, this is really, really cool. Because a lot of the education that Sue teaches and that we talk about here on this platform is to find something you're super passionate about, create a campaign around it, make sure it's authentic. Because it's such a great way to not only feel good about what you do, but to drive business to yourself and to book more clients. And it seems like that is what you have done, but like on such a huge, massive scale.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think the work has gotten bigger over time. I've always had this penchant for doing things that nobody else has done before. And I think when you go down this rabbit hole of like, Bigger every single time. And every time you want to do bigger, you want to do better than the last one. It, it just gets increasingly unwieldy. So I'm at the point where I'm doing maybe one or two projects a year. Of course, in the past, I was doing them almost weekly. So I, wow. yeah.
0: So you seem like a total creator. Like I know, obviously, you're an artist and everything, but I think there are a lot of photographer business owners who aren't like creative to the level of where they need to be creating. Like you said, bigger and better all the time. You seem like such a creator.
1: Yeah, I think my work looks a lot more creative than it actually is. So um, maybe to give some people context, like I've put a mermaid on ten thousand plastic bottles, or I've converted an art installation uh, out of one hundred sixty eight thousand plastic straws to create a Guinness World Record. But like these pieces are really just logistically intensive more than anything else. The mm-hmm. photography and the art, artist, the artistry of it is actually just coming up with the idea and finding a great way to capture it, just like every other photographer does. Where the work lies is in actually production, uh, marketing, mm. like emailing. I spend so much time on emails. I'm probably a professional emailer more than I'm a professional photographer. <laughs> and, I, and so I think there's a lot of work behind the scenes that Really is just a bunch of bigger problems broken down into smaller problems.
0: Okay. Yeah. That makes total sense. Cause I was going to ask you, like, does that get in the way of, like, cause it seems like a lot of creators have a hard time with the business aspect of it when, when your mind is just, you know, your, your like profile is creator, but then you also have to run a business. And that's something we're always trying to like, talk about and make sure, you know, there's, there, we're meshing the two together so that you can actually like have a successful business around it.
1: Yeah, so I, I think I'm a little bit of a 50-50 split. I have a background as a hard rock mining engineer, so that's what oh, I wow. studied in school and worked for three and a half years as an engineer before transitioning to photography. Okay. Um, and that wasn't even like an intentional transition, it was just a, I want to travel the world and do fun things, and oh, what's the best way to travel the world for free? Photography. Oh, look, I'm a photographer now. <laughs> <laughs> it was basically how it happened. And so... I think somewhere in the middle of my career, I realized that you could either work really hard to do lots of small projects, so let's say the thousand dollar gigs and then how, how like if you want to make fifty thousand dollars a year, you need you know to book two of these a week um, if you're, you 're know, factoring in your expenses, or you can like figure out how you can do like the projects that will bring in thirty or forty thousand dollars each, and in that case, maybe you only need one or two or three of them and so I realized kind of early on that what got me excited was doing the big, complicated things, and I guess playing the lottery game because they're yeah. a lot harder to find, but then when you find them, you have a lot more creative freedom,
0: yeah, oh yeah, I love that, I love that. I want to go back a little bit because you said you were an engineer at rock mining and right
1: yeah hard rock mining engineer,
0: so cool so but then you decided obviously you wanted to travel i was I was very similar, that's kind of how I picked up a camera to begin with was traveling i'm there are a lot of listeners who are in the position where they kind of want to quit their job, whether they're a teacher or engineer, you know, whatever. So how did you just like quit and just pick up and start doing that?
1: <laughs> I mean, I guess privilege is one. Like I had, mm-hmm. I had an education, I had savings. Mm-hmm. I felt very confident that, you know, worst case, I just go back to school, mm-hmm. you know, or worst case, I just get a job again. Like there was, it was not really a, big leap for me. I was a 25 year old, no kids. So I really had that freedom of saying like, well, worst case i just kind of lose my savings and i'm back at zero
0: okay yeah 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 yeah
1: but for me i think quitting my day job was more about running away from something i didn't want to do mm-hmm. as opposed mm-hmm. to running towards something i really wanted to do mm-hmm. i woke up one day and i was like in 10 years i don't want to be sitting at a bigger desk earning more money doing the same job right yeah. and i was like well i don't know what i want to do but if i don't start looking i'm never going to find it so that was really the the catalyst for moving on i have to say though that there was this expectation in my mind that if I quit my day job, I would gain like 40 hours a week to do something that <laughs> I enjoy doing. But the truth is, you don't gain that much because, I don't know, when I had a day job, I don't know about the, the other folks that are thinking of that, but I spent a lot of my day job time thinking about the creative stuff that I wanted to do, You know, mm-hmm. doing a little bit of admin stuff here and there. And so your like effective time gain is actually not that much. Um, what you do gain is like, that freedom to like, build your own schedule, freedom to travel, freedom to, to sculpt the life that you want without having anyone telling you what to do. But that also comes with a lot of, like, are you going in the right direction? Like, what, How are you measuring your success? <laughs> it was, like, is, it, is it going fast enough? Are you stable enough? Like, and you have all these questions and there's no one that's giving you a support structure. There's no quarterly reviews, there's no boss telling you what to do. Mm-hmm. You're just like, completely up to your own devices.
0: Oh, that's so true. You just like completely summed up being an entrepreneur business owner <laughs> to a T so perfectly. Okay. So you decided you're going to travel, you were going to be a photographer. And then, you know, at what point, because you said that early on, you said you were doing weekly projects and now you're doing yearly. Can you kind of take us through how all of that evolved?
1: Yeah, for sure. So I think time scale matters because the world. 10 years ago and the world today is very different, right? So I just want to like caveat my strategies with the fact that the world has changed since then. So I bought my first camera in November 2007. I started my day job in 2008. And I quit my day job four years or three and a half years after that. And so I was doing photography on evenings and weekends. I'd managed to negotiate a four-day work week, 10 hours a day. and So I had three-day weekends to do my creative projects. Nice. And by the time I quit my job, I already had 7,000 followers on Facebook. And this is 2012, right? So mm-hmm. 7,000 followers on Facebook. had more re- I had more reach then than I do now with 300,000 followers. And so by that point, I was able to put up a status on Facebook and say, hey, I want to go to France. Is there a photo club in France? that wants to host me. And I was able to like, do a workshop there and teach. And, and that's how I would travel from place to place.
0: Okay, cool.
1: So between teaching in different photography communities and every time you do a workshop, now you've made, I don't know, let's say there's 30 people there. Now you have 30 friends. You have 30 potential sofas to sleep on. You, you can now collaborate with their friends. And, and, and there's this thing that happens when you're in a place for a short amount of time. Everyone makes time for you. Whereas when you're locally available, it's like, Like planning these shoots just seemed to take forever because everyone's like, yeah, maybe in like two months I'll do this thing. It's like, yo, it takes forever. But when you're traveling, you just got to supercharge everything. Mm -hmm. And I I learned a little bit early on. And so I started doing behind the scenes video content right around the time F Stoppers was just getting launched. And so Mm -hmm. when F Stoppers Mm -hmm. was launching, they were featuring one project a day. And so to get featured on F Stoppers meant quite a little bit. And I started to notice that if I created behind the scenes content, showing people something they didn't know, like doing something in a really interesting way, the same photo shoot that I did would get more traction. And so Ooh, yeah. documenting my work became a core part of the business strategy. And I think we see this a lot today with creators on TikTok, right? They'll share these sort of uh, catchy 15-second the scene videos that then suddenly like, get way more traction than the photo alone ever could. And so that's, that's become an integral part of my strategy. And then over time, I started to realize that just getting views didn't necessarily matter because unless you want to be a full-time educator, having a lot of photography followers is not actually that useful, right? Mm -hmm. Because photographers don't hire other photographers unless it's for teaching. And so I started to think about, well, I need to figure out how to break out beyond my industry into other industries. And the best way to do that is to get press coverage. So how can I craft projects that mainstream media will want to cover? And so then an entire press strategy started layering on that.
0: Now, before we get into press strategies, because I think that's super important, I want to go back to something that you'd said about posting behind the scenes. And I know at that time, it sounds like you were appealing more to photographers. Just like, was it based on like a how-to type behind the scenes, how you were creating what you were doing and how you're getting the photo, that sort of thing?
1: Yeah, and I think that the, the important caveat there is, is that it's not behind the scenes for the sake of behind the scenes. It's behind the scenes to show people something they didn't already know, right? Mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. in my case, I was doing, I was using flour as a replacement for smoke and I'd make a tutorial on that. Or I was shooting okay. with ultraviolet lights in the water and showing how I was doing that. Right, or I was right, right. tying people underwater and making a video and showing how I was doing that. Or lighting people on fire and showing how I was doing <laughs> that. And so along the way, you kind of share your like, your experiments, your failures, your successes. And what this does is it gives people the chance to be the hero in their own journey. You're merely the guide. You're providing them with the framework so that they too can create things that they want to do. And I think that's really important. The difference between a good behind-the-scene video and a bad behind-the-scene video, it's like a bad behind-the-scene video is basically saying, look at me, look how awesome I am, look Mm -hmm. what I did, isn't it beautiful? Whereas a good behind-the-scene video is kind of showing and inspiring people so that they too can feel empowered and enabled to do whatever it is that they hope to do.
0: Oh, I love that. I love that. And I think this is so important because we talk a lot about using behind the scenes in the marketing, but appealing to the client. So like showing them, this is what I can do for you. How can I serve you the service I'm going to provide? Whether it is showing you giving direction to the person or showing that you provide hair and makeup in your studio or that you help them select their clothes or whatever it is, but but showing them the behind the scenes of what you're going to provide for that for your potential clients, I think is so, so, so important. And again, it's not all about you. Look at me. It's about what can I do for you and how can I inspire you to want to book a photo shoot or whatever. So just to relate it to, you know, doing client behind the scenes. Because obviously there's a difference between appealing, you know, for photography education versus appealing to potential clients.
1: Right. So I would say if it was a portrait studio, then you want to really focus on how you're making the people feel, right? You want to to show people enjoying themselves, getting comfortable, laughing, feeling comfortable, and then maybe like breaking down of barriers. And so they, they they can see themselves in those shoes too. So absolutely, totally agree with you.
0: Yes, absolutely. That's totally perfect. Okay. So let's then talk about, yes, absolutely people to include behind the scenes with whatever they are trying to attract to them is what they need to be showing. So what mm-hmm. about press coverage? That's something we haven't really talked a lot about on this podcast.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think press is one of those things. It used to be a lot more powerful than it is today. Back in 2014-2015 when I was employing this strategy, this was sort of the time frame where I think Huffington Post and these guys were just getting on the internet. So there were a lot of like BuzzFeed news kind of upstarts that were trying to upend mainstream media. And the way it worked is that if a big news outlet covered you, all the small news outlets would copy the coverage, and then suddenly this, and and people love popular things. So if you say this thing is going viral, and then it suddenly becomes a self fulfilling prophecy because other people start picking it up. Uh, These days, the the networks are a lot more diluted, so it is a little bit harder. So my my strategies have evolved, but I think the general principle stays the same, and that is how are you summarizing what you're doing in one sentence. If you write an email to a journalist, are they going to open the email? Because is that, is that headline interesting? If you're going to post a link on Facebook, is the headline so interesting that people want to share it before they even click on it? Right? That's how fake news really spreads. And so this, the importance of a headline, I think, is, is so, it's so basic, but it's so important. It's sort of like if you were sitting at the bar and you turn to the person next to you and you say, hey, I just did X this weekend. Do you want to hear more? And if you're not able to like condense whatever it is that you did in this like one single curiosity evoking sentence, then chances are the guy's gonna say no. And and that's what most of the internet does. They don't have time to like sit around and waffle about to to to, to see whether or not they wanna click on something. They're just that's just not how people are.
0: Oh, I love that. I love that. And and I think it's so important too, like when you're showing your work, even even everything that you said, I think can be translated to like website, social media, whatever. If I have to search and search and search to find out how you, what services you're going to provide to me as a potential client, I'm going to move on. Like everything mm. needs to be right there in that one sentence, whether it's your pitch or, you know, just when I open, like like when I look at your Instagram, I open it and I'm like, wow, like you can see, just so much content right there. Or if I open your website, it's like, you know pretty quickly what you're doing. And I think that's just so, so, so important. And yeah, it's having that kind of one-liner, that elevator pitch is so important for not only your marketing, but just talking to people in general about what you do.
1: Yeah, my one-liner for the longest time was, I take photos that people think are Photoshopped. (laughs) <laughs> and so that just makes you go like, "Wait, I want to know more." Like, yeah, "What like, do you mean like see. photos that people are photoshop and it's like, "Oh, like I tied a model underwater with sharks swimming around." And they're like, yeah. "Wait, what?" <laughs> and so that, that's how that's how conversations get started, right? Like the more amount of "Wait, what?" like "Tell me more" or that that feels unexpected. I think the more of that sensation you can create, the the quicker you can break down barriers.
0: Totally. I, I do mostly personal branding photographs of women and I cannot tell you how many times I've heard women say, I hate having my photo taken, or I'm not photogenic. And so my kind of line was, I love photographing people who don't think they're photogenic. Or my favorite Perfect. client is the client who hates to be photographed. So it's like figuring out what it is that, who do you want to appeal in that one line? I love, love, love that you brought that up. So I hope people yeah. listening will start thinking about like what their one line is going to be.
1: Yours is particularly genius because you are actually, in your sentence, you're calling out a person's problem and you're offering a solution. Whereas mine doesn't do that, so I actually prefer your one-liner, and (laughs) I need need a better one now.
0: (laughs) Well, you know, I think it's all about like figuring out people's pain points, and and I know you do this like for corporations, for example. I know you've worked for like Nike, and is it Green? P-
1: Nike, Greenpeace, Dell, Greenpeace, yes. Okay, yeah. Like
0: a bunch of different corporations and I wonder if that's something that you could apply to that like figuring out what are the pain points of these different corporations or whomever you might want to work for and start using that as a one-liner and, you know.
1: Yeah, you know. I haven't figured it out exactly. So the best kind of word that I found that summarizes my work in a, in a single word was like unforgettable. Like I try to create work that is unforgettable yeah, you know, yeah. in a world where you know, everyone is creating content daily. I try to create work that is unforgettable. So rather than try to just throw information at people, like how do you own a piece of someone's heart is kind of right. the way I try to think about it. But converting that, incorporating like the social impact component of what I try to do along with everything else, I haven't quite found an elegant one-liner yet for my current work. But maybe that's another conversation we can have sometime. <laughs>
0: yeah, yeah. We kind of tell people, and I know, I know what you do encompasses so much, but can you just try to summarize a little bit about, you know, about what you are passionate about and what you are trying to bring awareness to? Yeah,
1: so th- the way I describe it in a bio is I'm an artist and activist that has generated over 100 million views for different causes like ocean plastics, fast fashion, and electronic waste. And I just think that that just speaks to the reach and the, the topic up to them to look at it to decide whether or not they like the how it's done. But essentially I create, I'm like a one person agency. I do everything from concept development all the way to like launch press and marketing and, and, and putting oh, together wow. the press kits. And so I'm like this sort of one person team that just you know, spends all my time really trying hard to create something that the world hasn't seen before and to make a important social issue into something that's like conversationally friendly to the average person. Mm. And the way I do that is not just through the photos, but like there's also the video components, there's you know most recently a lot of physical art installation that people can visit and interact with and take photos in front of. And then there's an entire like press press and digital strategy which I'm trying to open source as much as possible this idea that you can call people in and invite them to participate in the projects too is is one of the things that I've been working on most recently. So, I mean, I can break down, for example, how this giant plastic tab project I'm putting together and what the different layers are, if, if that will like make it a little bit more granular.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I would love to hear that.
1: Okay, cool. So the Canadian embassy in Paris reached out and they wanted to commission an art installation. And so it was originally supposed to take place in Paris, then COVID happened and got canceled and then it, got, it got revived. And so I essentially convinced them to let me build the art installation in Montreal which is where I currently am, and, and then I would ship it to them in Paris. And so they really wanted this physical art installation. And then I made this installation that, that could travel so that I personally could photograph it in five different locations here in Montreal. So we, we built this like three-story tall, giant faucet with plastics just leaking out of it all over the environment. And then we moved it to a beach, to a landfill, to a playground, to a recycling facility, to a container yard, And then now it's off on its way to a gallery in Paris. So now you have an installation piece, you have a photography layer piece, Mm -hmm. and then I wanted to figure out how we could engage the public. So now I've I've cut out this giant faucet and put it up against a green screen so that anyone who was interested in Photoshopping it could now Photoshop a remix of this art installation themselves. So now there's like an open creativity piece of it. But then to incentivize participation, I put together a $10,000 prize pool from like all these different sponsors so that I can like draw a prize every single day of the entire campaign, which will continuously drive momentum to it. But you don't just want to create awareness for something, you want to attach it to a solution. Mm-hmm. So I have 10 different nonprofits that have all these different call to actions that they're working on, which all revolve around this concept of turning off the plastic tap. So going straight to the source and figuring out how are we going to stop producing plastics in the first place. Yeah. So now we have creatives that are amplifying the campaign with their own followings. You have nonprofits that are amplifying the campaign with their own followings because you're helping them communicate something that's important to them. And then you're helping brands, or the brands are going to help amplify the campaign because they too want to talk about the fact that they're involved in something bigger than themselves. And so now you've sort of stolen or you've borrowed the followings of all these other people, given them an opportunity to be a part of something greater. And now the campaign can spread. And so those are kind of the layers of engagement that I try to think about as I build out something like that.
0: I mean, it's, it's pretty genius that you, you actually have a team of people marketing for you that, I mean, obviously you did a lot of work to get to that point, but to be able to have other people spreading the word for you, it's like you have these like evangelists who are helping you. And, and not yeah. only helping you, but helping what, the important work that you're doing. Mm -hmm. It's really cool,
1: but I think it was born out of necessity, right? Because Mm -hmm. what happens today when you put something out on the internet, you'll launch something and it'll be cool for twenty four hours, and nobody will ever look at it again.
0: Yeah, yeah,
1: right. Like that's just the way it works. Okay, and and if it was press, if press picked it up, if I if I got on a CNN or a BBC or something, it would still be hot news for about three days, and then it would just fade once again. And so I think there's something to be said about being able to create something that can continuously refresh itself so that is it is consistently current with the times. Mm-hmm. I think the work that I'm doing in social work so I do I do a lot of campaigns around social issues so one like this one's around plastics as a, as an issue like the plastics issue isn't going away. Mm-hmm. Like in 10 years we're still going to have the problem. So the work essentially is timeless. And so what, I, what I'm doing, even though I'm not able to keep up with the young kids these days and posting stuff like 15 times a day, I think I can own the SEO game. Because now when you type plastic artists or plastic photographer or environmental artists on Google, I am going to be in the top three pages. Yeah, yeah. And, and I'm going to stay there for the next conceivable amount of time so long as I can continuously make sure that my work stays relevant and I continuously innovate and create things that are conversation worthy. So. I think it's just a different strategy. The flashiest people on social media these days are all kind of pushing for this uh, high-frequency content creation strategy. Yeah. And it makes sense because that's what the platforms are incentivizing. But I just don't work that way. It just doesn't yeah. interest me, and so I've had to adapt and find different ways in order to survive. And so if I can't create content every day, how can I give the people who are creating content every day something to share that I can benefit from? and and kind of work it out that way.
0: So smart, so smart. When you were just talking about like, you know, influencers who are all over, you know, that whole, the way that they have to be on social media, it just makes me like, uh, like makes me so uncomfortable. So I, I love that you are able to be successful in this way without having to constantly be all over social media. It's so smart. And okay, so one of the questions I had for you was how, like, how did the Canadian embassy, okay, wait, let me make sure I got that right. Did I say the right Canadian embassy?
1: Canadian Embassy in Paris.
0: Okay, yeah. So they contacted you. How, how did they find you? Is this because of your SEO? Like how do they decide like we want Ben?
1: So I did a project with the Canadian Embassy, at the Canadian Embassy in Singapore. Okay. But they discovered me through my SEO. Uh, so Canada, okay. the country, has a cultural export program where they like to find artists that are tackling issues that Canada as a country wants to promote. So that is environmental issues, indigenous right issues, LGBTQIA issues, among a couple others. Mm-hmm. And so I was discovered basically through my SEO. Yeah.
0: Okay. Awesome. All right. This is good. Now, I know what the work that you do is incredibly important and you're an artist and you know all of these things. How do you, with all of these important things, like make money doing this, I guess? Because I'm sure there are people listening who want to be Doing these great projects, and you know whether it 's for social causes or personal reasons or whatever that that is, but are thinking, well how do I monetize this like how do I pay my bills
1: yeah I mean maybe the first place to start is to recognize that nobody hires you to do something you've never done before right like people need to see what you're able to do so that they can hire you to do the, about the same thing but slightly differently right yeah. um, even the most innovative advertising agencies or the most avant-garde nonprofits generally speaking nobody likes to take risks the bigger the organization the more money they have behind them the less risks they want to take mm. and so what can you do to prove that you can do whatever it is you want to do with zero resources and 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 bring that to life so that that I think is the first thing to start first place to start how you make money doing it I mean, there's like the poetic answer where you say, what is it, Alan Watts, who says like, what if money worth no objects? Like the only way to become great at something is to do something because you love it and want to do it and then you become great at it. And once you're, once you're great at it and nobody else can do it, then you can get paid for it. So like, sure, that's great in concept, but in practice, a little bit, a little bit harder. Yeah. And so maybe I'll just give like how I make money.
0: If you're okay sharing that, I mean, yeah.
1: Yeah, yeah. So I make money through commissioned projects, right? So I can't say that unless they're like an A-list client, like a, a Dell or something, with high licensing rates, it's not a very profitable thing. Because I'm basically taking all the money that I have and I'm doing more than I need to because I care about the outcomes of what I create more than... like. I want the client to be happy. And yes, that's fine. But the client's bar is usually significantly lower than mine. And so I'm going to take all the extra resources I have to make sure that it can reach as many people. Like this entire online component of the, the campaign with a giant faucet is entirely self funded. Wow. There's like, that's not, part, it's outside of the scope of my brief, but it's, it's putting like two or three times the amount of workload on that wouldn't have happened otherwise. And that's something that's important to me. Right. So, but, but I do make money there. There's a long tail effect to the work that I create because it has a high SEO value, which means that anytime a magazine, a trade publication, a museum, a library, a book is trying to talk about these issues and looking for interesting ways to communicate it, I get licensing rates from those over time. Mm. I have received commercial requests in the past where companies will come and license images. That's also great. I tend to make quite a little bit of revenue pre-COVID, especially from speaking engagements. Uh, yeah. Because once again, I lead a non-traditional life and it works very well in more corporate circles. Uh, and I'm able to break down a little bit of the, the work that I do into you know marketing lessons that are actually very practical for people. Um, so that's another avenue of income and ability to travel. And then the final way that I would make money is through consulting. So people come and they're like, hey, we want <laughs> this used to happen all the time. So people people would come and they're like, "We love what you do. You know, this is what we do. Do you have any, any ideas?" And then I would go through this process of giving them all these ideas for free because they're trying to like pitch them. Yeah. And and then it would fall through for whatever reason and you're like, "Man, I just wasted all this time for nothing." So that is what you don't want to do is give ideas out for free. What you what you do instead when someone says, "I love your work. What do you think?" I'm like, "I'm sure we could figure something out together. I've met clients that are in your exact situation and this is how I've helped them in the past, you know, the first step is to, is to go through like a design process together so that we can better understand what it is you're looking for and what kind of solution I might be able to help you find. And I may not even be the right person for it, but I can help you get there and come up with an idea that will really, really work for you. And so I do this consulting thing on the side, which is essentially an invisible part of my business because those projects either see the light of day and are not attributed to me or they don't move forward because after they actually took the time to properly think about it, they're like, "Actually, this is this is way too complicated. This is not what we're actually looking for."
0: Right, right. It's so interesting to hear you say that because even though what you're doing is a, it's different than just portraits. It's all the same. It, you had to build your portfolio. You don't just get hired by Nike because you've never done anything before. Like you, you had to build that portfolio and show the work. I mean, so that's number one. And then I love too that. There are lots of of different ways that you have income coming in. And I think that's really great. I think it's really smart to have different income sources. And overall, I you know, it just if something happens like COVID for example, okay, maybe the speaking engagements might have stopped, but you've got other things going on with licensing agreements and all that. I really love that. Like we have to be able to shift and make turns all the time. And yeah, I I love that you do that. It's great.
1: Yeah, I mean, we also don't have a choice, right? So, <laughs> yeah, you know, yeah,
0: totally, I, I, totally.
1: Probably the the best thing to become comfortable with as an entrepreneur is just comfortable with change and and to figure out like how how are you going to adapt because the only guarantee is that things are going to change.
0: Yeah, yeah. Another thing you said too is how you do kind of like the consultations with the people who are interested in what you do, and I mean that's huge too. Even if it is a portrait shoot for someone or high school senior photos or whatever you have to make sure that you are going to provide the service that they are actually looking for. Otherwise, no one's going to be happy in the end. So it, it's crazy how all the different moving parts are very similar. You're just applying it to a different type of art and, and client. Yeah, so, yeah. I get. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's really, really cool. So when you gave your kind of like about you, you know, what you do, you said it kind of quickly. You said there was fast fashion, plastics, and, and tell me the third one. Waste. Yes. Okay.
1: Electronic waste.
0: The project I was when I was looking through your Instagram, I was kind of interested in the really the tall closet one about fast fashion. Will you talk talk a little bit about that?
1: Yeah, it, that was just a fun project that came together. So I was I'd come to the conclusion that doing large epic photography alone was not going to be financially sustainable because mm-hmm. why spend so much money for something that will only be relevant for 24 hours, right? Mm-hmm. You know, maybe 20 years ago when you were creating these like big campaigns and you could put billboards around and it could really like last, keep and hold people's attention for a long time, there was a place for such you know, a complex photography. But these days I think it's more about, oh wait, what's newer, what's fresher, what's quicker. Yeah. And it's just keep that content wheel kind of moving. And so I was like, okay, I really need to start thinking about how I can get into the installation space. And so I was invited to do a talk in Egypt with the Nexus community, which is a group of young philanthropists that are looking for ways to put their money to get use And I was chatting with my friend as well as the organizer, and we were trying to think of, well, how could we make this trip to Egypt be more than just a speaking engagement? You know, Would it be interesting for them to sponsor or support a campaign? And they're like, okay, well, what do you want to do? And so we, we came up with this idea of making the world's tallest closet, which would fit one lifetime of clothing. So this is like a 10-story tall, big, well, it's really just a, a, a rectangle with two doors. Yeah. But we just organized like all these, cla- uh, all these clothes that we were able to collect inside of this one structure to represent how many clothes we use in a lifetime. And we organized the clothes from like long dresses all the way down to like short little baby clothes, <laughs> uh, all the way to the top. And, yeah. and that was just a project that we put together to, to, to ignite a conversation around, around that topic, right? Art, once again, as a, a curiosity prompter of saying, hey, mm-hmm. have you ever thought about all the clothes that you've worn in one lifetime? You know, if each. Each cotton t shirt uses up 2,500 liters of water. What about your entire closet? Do you really need this extra shirt? Do you need to buy new clothes and just wear it once? Like, this is a problem. So, but but without even saying it in that many words, right? You just say, this is how much clothing you wear in a lifetime. You come to your own conclusion.
0: Yeah. And those are things that I have never heard that before about using, utilizing water for cotton. And it's just not something that I've ever, registers. I just buy my clothes. And, <sighs> and that's not to say I don't buy, from, you know, there are specific companies that I prefer because of certain practices, whatever. But I think, you know, most people just buy their clothes because they like them. And I love that you're, it's, it's so thought-provoking and, and educational around it. Do you, okay, this is kind of like, I don't know, probably a tricky question, but do you feel like it truly is making an impact with what you're doing? Like, is, do you have like people telling you that they've changed the way that they either purchase clothes or use plastic. You know, how how have you found, I guess, that it's made an impact?
1: Yeah, so I have anecdotal stories where people come up and they'll say that their behaviors changed or that they implemented a new policy in their company as a result of it. Mm-hmm. I'll obviously see the work getting used and reused, you know, so like when the work goes from being on my website to now being on a stamp to then being inside of a book to then being in a museum you kind of go like i guess it's it's clearly having some kind <laughs> of an impact somewhere and then you get students that are like doing their school projects and then they're reaching out to me and they're like hey can i interview you for my school project they're like okay well i guess you know people yes. are sharing this work like it's it's getting around but like i think we we think about change in the wrong way we think about change as like a binary like change or not change, mm-hmm. like ice or water. But the truth is like people are kind of on a spectrum, right? So if yeah. you go from like negative 25 degrees to and I'm in mm-hmm. Celsius, so zero being when uh, ice turns to water. So if you're at negative 25 Celsius and you go down to like negative 20, like that's progress, that's change, but it's mm-hmm. not visible change. And I think that's what these projects are for me. They're an opportunity to remind people who already care about it. They're an opportunity to help people who already care that want to talk about it in a different way. That's cool. Be able to talk about it. It's an opportunity to bring new people into the conversations that may have never heard about it. It's an opportunity to give people more resilience who already believe in it. And how do you measure that? How do you know? Like, I don't know. And it's actually something that deeply bothers me because I have all these KPIs, right? Like I have, the, I have the hundreds of articles that I've been published in and I have like the hundreds of thousands or millions of likes and I have the awards and all these things. But like those have nothing to do with the actual outcomes right. of the projects. But I don't know if you can, you know, even outside of the art world, if you can truly claim attribution for any kind of change, Right. Societal level change is the result of like massive collaboration between mm-hmm. a whole bunch of different parties. And yes, we tell ourselves stories of these individual heroes that come up and change the world, but it's actually like a collective sustained effort where, where people work towards something that they believe in over really, really long periods of time. That, that's the only way true sustained change ever happens. And so maybe it's just the wrong question to be asking. And the right question to be asking is like, okay, I know. I know that like how can I design what I do best to reach more people and to connect deeper into the communities. Mm-hmm. Because yeah. art alone can't create change, but art in conjunction with communities, policymakers, NGOs, grassroots organizations, that's when you can start, you know, feeling a little bit more because awareness alone doesn't lead to action. You need to know what to do. You right, know. And right. so helping to close those gaps, I think, is really critical.
0: Wow. Yeah. I mean, clearly I would like to believe, and again, like you said, it is a spectrum, but I would like to believe that, yeah, you are bringing change. And and to bring it back to the impact that we can make in a business just as a portrait photographer, when I think about if someone left my studio feeling really great, you know, feeling beautiful, feeling you know, just having an experience, like, for example, I had a client who said that weekend after her her photo shoot, it was like a Wednesday or something that weekend, she went out and bought a bike because she just felt like she'd been lifted out of a fog. And so she started biking and, you know, little things like that. I'm like, okay, I feel like I did something great, even though I'm just a portrait photographer. Like I made a difference in this woman's life. And, and like you said, it's a spectrum, but if we can bring it back to what we're doing and how we're going to provide service and yeah, we might not necessarily be changing the world on a grand scale, but there's always a way that we can impact someone in a positive way,
1: yeah, and you know all change is important, right, like how you show up like there's if if you're only showing up to the world and you're not showing up to your family and the little things that matter, then are you really doing your part right so mm. I, I don't think there's any kind of light of judgment that you want to cast upon anyone that they're not doing enough, but I do right. think like as long as we are always continuously trying to do better and to be better and to you know when we notice opportunities to lift others up that need to be lifted and mm-hmm, we mm-hmm. have the opportunity to live up to the values that we we believe in and that we preach about right like practice what you preach and yeah. then i think yeah. that continuous progress towards being better not just for yourself but for others around you is the right mindset to have
0: yeah yeah well thank you for everything you just said i mean You're clearly someone who is just very intelligent, very passionate, and you care a lot about a lot of things. (laughs) And (laughs) and it's really I'm just really grateful to have, you know, learned about what you do and and to have been introduced to you because it's you've definitely got me thinking a lot for sure. So
1: Thank you so much for having me and thanks for everyone for listening to my rambles. Um, <laughs> if you guys are curious about the latest campaign, you can head over to turnofftheplastictap.com to just see how the entire campaign is put together, see how the different elements are, participate in it if you want to, or just watch the videos on how it came together. There's like $10,000 of prizes to win and all you need to do is watch the content or share it and, and that would be great.
0: Yeah, awesome, awesome. Okay, so real quick though, before I ask about your Instagram and all that, I always do four questions at the end of each episode. And I'm wondering if you're, you'll answer those for us. And the, the first question is, what is something you can't live without when you're doing a photo shoot?
1: The, the one thing that I always have in every photo shoot I do is people. And it's not mm-hmm. actually like, not necessarily the subject, but like people around me. There mm-hmm. is an entire team of invisible people that that I Build along the way that help make these projects happen. Whether they're just assistants that are helping in the background, or producers, or a scout, or anything like that. Like there's just there's always people, and so I I don't create anything that I do alone. I always need help to do it.
0: Mm, okay, yeah, I love that. Okay, the number two. How do you spend your time when you're not working?
1: Answering emails. Wait, no, that's working. <laughs> um,
0: <laughs> nope, that doesn't count.
1: It's a hard one. It's a hard one because. My work and my life are actually so intertwined that like, my being is actually my working. Like, I love meeting new people and talking to them, but that could be networking or it could just be hanging out. (laughs) I I love traveling. So I guess traveling and meeting people is what I like to do and probably would be doing if work wasn't a piece of the puzzle.
0: Right, okay, cool, very cool. Okay, number three is, what is your favorite inspirational quote?
1: I started... So, it, I, I guess I'm, I'm segueing a little bit. Like, I've started writing every single day for the last 20 days, and I'm curious to know how long I can keep it up. But it was specifically this idea that I would be listening to podcasts and hearing things that I would find interesting and then never recording them down anywhere. And so, mm. I started this thing on Medium. It's just called Von Wong Daily, and I write daily thoughts. So, like, today's thought was about how in order to make bread, you need water, flour, salt, and yeast but just because you put the right ingredients together doesn't mean you have bread you need a fifth ingredient that is time mm-hmm. like it doesn't matter what you do you still you can't you can't poke it you can't like screw around with it cuz then you're going to ruin it and so i think we often wonder why things take so long when we have all the right ingredients in place like why are people not discovering us and sometimes it's just cuz you need time like time is actually an ingredient and so that would be an example of a thought that i would have written down today and so it's not really a quote because I don't think a favorite quote really exists for me, but I do like to collect quotes and ideas. And I've recently decided to start learning, learning, practicing writing in public. And so that's just, yeah, medium.com slash von Wong daily.
0: Yeah, fantastic. Well, I'll check it out. Okay, and the last question is, what would you say to people who are just starting out? Like, what's your best advice for people?
1: I think it's important to think about what you enjoy doing and not about what the tool is. So don't think about, don't say, I want to be a photographer. Think about what about photography do you enjoy and make sure not to lose sight of that as you build your photography business. Cause I think that's something that people do very often.
0: Yeah. Perfect. Great advice. Awesome. And then tell us again, just your Instagram handle, your website, just where people can find you.
1: Yeah, you can just Google Von Wong and you'll find me on all the platforms, Instagram, Twitter, LinkedIn, Facebook, whatever. I don't post very often. I'm fairly inconsistent. and <laughs> so. Um, but when I do post, it's usually something interesting.
0: Yeah. Cool. Awesome. Well, thank you again, Ben. I really appreciate you taking the time to do this with us and I will see you online.
1: Yeah, thank you so much for taking the time of having me.
0: Thank you so much for listening to the Portrait System Podcast. Your five-star reviews really help us to continue what we do. So if you like listening, would you mind giving us a review wherever you listen? I also encourage you to head over to subriceeducation.com where you can find all of the education you need to be a successful photographer. There are over 1,000 on-demand educational videos on things like posing, lighting, styling, retouching, shooting, marketing, sales, business, and self-value. There's also the 90-Day Startup Challenge, plus so many downloads showing hundreds of different poses. We have to-do checklists for your business, lighting PDFs. I mean, truly everything to help make you a better photographer and to make you more money. Once again, that's subriceeducation.com. It's time for me to tell you about this episode's sponsor, Fujifilm North America. If you haven't experienced portraits and wedding scenes created on the large format GFX system digital camera sensor, you are missing out. Along with up to 102 megapixel resolution, you'll find rich colors and gorgeous in-camera looks. There's also AI driven subject detection and eight frames per second bursts inside the compact GFX 100 digital camera. Hit the link in this episode's description to view the products. It's time to dream big in your creative process.